Hi, welcome to another edition of Steve's Speed Shop. Steve's Speed Shop is brought to you by Warranty Wise, the UK's best warranty provider. Get a quote from them today at warrantywise.co.uk. We're brought to you by West Coast Motorcycles. They're in the business of pre-loved Harley-Davidson motorcycles. They've been at it for 35 years, and you can find them on Facebook at West Coast Motorcycles. And we're brought to you by Mini Sports. Anything and everything for the classic mini since 1967. Matt Kelly has been involved in motorsport all his life, right from when he blagged his way into a cart when he was a kid. He's raced in various formula, he's been a team manager, and he's still involved in motor racing. He's also funny and opinionated, and both those things make for a great speech shop guest. My guest this week, Matt Kelly. I'm old enough, and I think you might be, I'm old enough to have virtually no photographs from my developing years from say 15 to 25 because who had a camera who had, when we were up to all the stuff that we were doing unless it was official and work related and there was a professional jeff bloxham was there or something like that unless it was official who had a cam? who thought yeah yeah right we'll meet in the train station bar and we'll have a couple in there and then we'll do this and then three o'clock in the morning you've lost your shirt and you've only got one shoe and somebody says hold on hold on let me take a picture when did that ever happen yeah. never Never. I think I think I, I was, when I was a kid, from about eight till sixteen, when I was casting, I think I've got one photograph. <laughs> yeah, because you were too busy, weren't you? No, and, and if you went out somewhere that was a bit dodgy, you're having a night out. If somebody turned up with a camera, you'd say you can put that fucker away to start off with. <laughs> yeah, because the thing was, a lot of the time. This is the problem for young people, and for, especially for racing drivers, not racing drivers, but it's relevant to, to this show and the content of this show. The sort of stuff that we got away with because the only people that remember it are the lads. And we, managed, mm. we managed not to get the cops involved. Or a lot of the time, see, you know, I was growing up here in Manchester, where I am now in the city centre. And to be honest, the cops here, um, police by consent. And so... They've always, and it's like that today, because I see it all the time, they've always allowed a certain amount of behavioural tomfoolery that perhaps won't be allowed in other places. Because there's no way they could just clamp down on all of it. It just, there's not enough of them. They, there's not enough hours in the in the day. There's not enough weeks in a year. So they'd turn up, they'd knock a few heads together, and then they'd send everyone on the separate... They wouldn't, like, lock everyone up because they haven't got enough cells. <laughs> you know, if they locked up every single person who got into a scuffle in Manchester on a Friday or Saturday night, you know, they'd have to, they'd have to turn the Arndale Centre into a jail. So, unfortunately... If, 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 I'm, if I meet up with some of my old pals from the 90s and, and the stuff we got up to when we were racing in the evenings... And the, the, the saving grace is everybody says at the end of a night out when we've all had a laugh together is thanks. There was no cameras around. <laughs> well, there were cameras around uh, for those pictures of, like, Moss and Hill and all the sort of Jim Clark and all them lot when they used to get dressed up in drag and go around after the Monte Carlo, after the Monaco, didn't they? They used to yeah. go out. It was traditional that the British drivers used to get dressed up as women and go on the town. <laughs> mm. I've got, I've got a few, I've got a few photos that I've been given of sort of a, a end of year prize awards when we were doing poker and all sorts of different things. 
and they show a picture of you and you go, who's that? And they go, it's you. And you it's go, you. <laughs> and then you go, and then you go, who are those three people? And they go, you were hanging out with them all night. And I was going, yeah. was I? Yeah. I don't remember that. <laughs> I, I've just, I've just got back from Goodwood and, uh, I was talking to this guy who I know who's something to do with the organisation of the event, and there was another geezer with him. And he said, uh, "I said, uh, he said, hey, Steve, how's it going?" I said, "Yeah, yeah, we're having a great time." And I said, "Do I know you?" And he said, he just started laughing, and he said, uh, "You've just, you've just written a big article for me." And I went, "All right." <laughs> <laughs> but he, and he said, he said, we, but it's one of those people where you correspond with them via email or message them all the time. But when, yeah. we, when we had met, it was like 10 years ago, and it was for two minutes. So he didn't, mm. he, he didn't hold it. He didn't hold it again. Well, he might hold it against me. I'll soon find out whether he asked me to write another article from him. So, you, karting, here's the thing. When did it start? Um, so I went to the British Kart Grand Prix in 1979 as a nine-year-old. And... I was already into anything with wheels. I'd always got my mates to push me and whatever we had. I was always the guy trying to be in control, you know, of whatever was available to play with and, and surrounding myself with mates that were happy to push. Um, and I was just into the whole thing, really. I used to buy Autosport when I was seven years old, you know, with my pocket money. And I just loved cars and racing. I was just, just fully into it. And then we went to the Kart Grand Prix in 79 the first time that I'd, I'd ever seen... I mean, I've been to Silverstone before because we live locally to, to watch F3 and stuff, but to watch these supercars going around the Grand Prix circuit just completely captivated me, and I just thought, well, uh, that's all I care about now. I just want to go motor racing. I'm not interested in school or, um, you know, girls or anything else. It was just any any opportunity to go to a circuit, work on something, get involved, clean stuff, um, all with a view to always end up, you know, I always knew I was going to end up driving. It was just how you got there because we didn't have any family money or anything, so I had to sort of beg, steal and borrow, really. It's funny, um, isn't it, when when you talk to, when I talk to guys, because my son was, was both a, a good football player, a very decent football player. He's got the build for it. He's, unlike me, he's not as, he's not as, he's not square. He's not as wide as he's long. He's like 6'4", rangy. Sort of great build, mm. great build for tennis. He was a junior boys champion and all that. Problem was, yeah. almost straight after he qualified for junior Wimbledon, he got into girls, music, and uh, jazz cigarettes. Mm. <laughs> like, almost, yeah. almost at the same time, and all yeah. th- all three of them are really going to affect your tennis game. If you look at tennis players being interviewed. The common theme, if you look at, and I, I, I love tennis, but if you look at the common theme of, say, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Andy Murray, they are all boring bastards, right? Listen, <laughs> listen that, to them yeah. being, listen to them being interviewed. The drone. How do you think? Oh, I think it was. A, you think? Oh my god! And that's why. Because they didn't do what my lad did. They'd, their head wasn't turned by the, sort, by the sort of things. They just got their nose to the grindstone and kept it there. Mm-hmm. Kept it there, yeah. and that's why they're champions. And it happens with... In fact, the, the, there are quite a few documentaries, aren't there? I'm trying to remember the Irish driver where there's... A, and I watched it only recently, and I, I bet you can remember the guy's name. 
and they were all saying, oh, this is the guy who was better than Ayrton Senna. But the problem was... He... Oh, Tommy, Tommy Byrne, yeah. Tommy Byrne, yeah. Oh, thank you, mate. Yeah. I knew you'd know. Yeah, I watched it only recently, Tommy, Tommy Byrne. For some reason, yeah. when I was thinking of him, uh, the name Donnelly popped into my head. And that's not yeah. because that's not because I only know two Irishmen <laughs> who have raced. Yeah. Lots of Irishmen. John Watson, for instance, there's another Irishman who's a very successful yeah. racer, yeah. right? And, yeah. a, and a great bloke. Didn't have as much success as he should have. Very talented guy. But that Tommy Byrne documentary says, basically, this guy had phenomenal natural talent, but he liked to party, right? Big, so, big time. So, so, so that was a that was a bit of a problem, but the point I was tr- I was gonna make before I got diverted, which of course you say you've listened to the show, is kind of the point of the whole show getting diverted. But mm-hmm. um, hopefully in an interesting way. Sometimes the point would be that I talked to parents at tennis and football when I was supporting my lad, taking him there, whatever, and they go, "It's so expensive," and I think. You have absolute. You think this is expensive? What? Because you had to buy a racket that cost hundred and fifty quid. You think that's expensive? Try any kind of motorsport, any kind of motorsport trials, motocross, karting for kids, whatever it is, a hundred and fifty quid. That's like that's not going to see you through a weekend. So you, <laughs> you know, you haven't as a parent, you haven't truly suffered with a kid who's into sport until that kid is into motorsport because that's when the real pain begins, isn't it? Yeah, I think I was really fortunate that growing up, like, you know, I was a child of the 70s, and it was a joyous time to be alive. And then we went into the 80s, again, another super exciting decade, which is when I was getting into karting. And back then, if you were quick, you know, if you could manage to get yourself into something, and, you, and people were like, wow, this guy's quick, Within a few weeks, you'd have somebody offer you a free engine and a, and a chassis to use on the basis they're trying to sell their gear and they want the quickest guys in them. Um, and the, a bit like that, when I first started car racing, you know, the teams wanted the quickest guys and they had team sponsors. And so there's lots of drivers who are 50 now that went through that era and didn't have any money. They were just super quick. Whereas nowadays, and I've experienced it firsthand, you know, I ran a, I ran a, quite a big team for the for the Bahraini world family for six years where the, the budget was limitless and it's 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 like a completely different sport you know um 20 years ago there were drivers making it on pure speed and now they only make it if you've got money and then hopefully you get the odd guy that's got money that's got speed as well but it's funny you say it's... that we were talking about it a couple of weeks ago and i think it's we had a guy on called peter grimsdale who's a fantastic mm-hmm. writer, and he writes, yeah. about, he writes about motor racing, but he used to be the editor of Crime Watch on the telly. He used to be the guy that ran that show. You know, he was, wow. like, a, he was like a big-time BBC TV producer, and now he, yeah. write, he writes these really entertaining books about motor racing. Mm. But he and I agreed that it's cyclical. There's, there are periods where you've got to have money, and there are periods where you can just be quick. And the last book that he wrote is about the Bentley boys in the 20s. And that's interesting because they were a real mixed bag. There were, like, mm. there were people like Sammy Davis, who was just there on ability, pure ability, a working class yeah. guy on pure ability. And mm-hmm. then there was like Simon, Glenn Kidston rather, not Simon Kidston, that's the guy who's still alive. But Glenn Kidston and Wolf Bernardo, who were like, you know, as rich as Wolf Bernardo was as rich as God. 
yeah. diamond mining. That tends to be quite lucrative, doesn't it? But th- when do you think it changed in sort of our our lifetime? Because, you know, I look back when people say to me, do you watch F1? I occasionally, if, if I'm in the room and it's on, I, would, I wouldn't go out of my way to watch it. And they said, but do you like F1? I said, I love, I adore F1, but specific eras of it. It, it, has its, it has its dull periods. It has its times when it's a bit moribund. One team's just got too much money and too many resources and their car's too quick. And so competition just goes out the window and you just think, yeah, whoever's, you know, whichever team is dominant is going to qualify at the front and it's going to be a procession to the finish line. And by the way, here's another thing. Do you remember when Grand Prix cars used to break down? When did mm. when did that stop happening? Yeah, yeah, I think um, I think going back to your original question, the when did it change? I think it changed um, twenty years ago uh, uh, on the dawn of the internet, really, because um, the internet spawned a whole new amount of money and wealthy people who obviously then wanted to use the internet to show everybody how wealthy they were and how successful they were. And motorsport was absolutely prime for that. You know, <clears throat> there used to be a time back in the day when I was a kid and used to go and work at Silverstone that you'd have what I would call proper racing teams. So it was a guy that was owned a team and had always been in motorsport and he would run drivers that brought money. You know, the Mikasalos, the, the Eddie Irvines, all these guys, they'd have F3 teams. And nowadays, the teams are owned by the dads of the drivers. Well, we were talking about um, that in football and, and being able to remember that in football because here in Manchester, of course, you've got City, which is owned by uh, Middle Eastern royalty, and then you've got United, which is owned by American venture capitalists. I can mm-hmm. remember when Man- the most prominent people at Manchester United Football Club were a local family of butchers. Burnley, yeah. Burnley Football Club was was run by a guy called Bob Lord, who, who again I think was a butcher. And mm-hmm. I can remember as a teenager having a job, having a job that was during the summer holidays, where I was clearing out this. I mean, it was quite telling in a way because you could get guess what? You could get loads of jobs clearing out what used to be factories in Manchester, which tells its own story. So I was yeah. clearing metal. Out. They just said to me, "Fill these skips, empty this huge building." You've got six weeks holiday. It'll probably take you six weeks. And I phoned my dad and said, hey, dad, there seems to be a lot of aluminium and stuff like that. And he said, right, well, I'm sending it. My dad sent a skip round. My dad said, I'm sending a skip round. Put the trash in the trash in theirs. Any alley, any alley, put it in my skip, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> and so we put it in the skip that my dad sent. And then at the end of the week, my dad came. They collected the skip. And we went to a, a scrap metal dealer in Manchester called Freddie Pie. And my dad said, hey, this guy's got a big piece of Manchester City. And you just think, really? I mean, he was—he came out of his caravan, you know, with his shirt, ta- his shirt tails hanging out, egg and bacon yeah. all down the front of him. Right, lads, what have you got for me here? And I think, can you imagine a man like that owning a piece of a Premier League football team? And this isn't, this isn't a century ago. This isn't ancient history. This has happened mm. since I've in my working life, and the same yeah. the same things kind of happened right through motorsport, hasn't it? The old way of doing business, like you said, proper teams, i.e., a bloke runs the team. He's got a lad who goes out and looks for the sponsorship money to keep the whole show on the road, and what he's looking for 
is the quickest driver that he can either persuade or, or afford into his yeah. car, into his car, so he can get the results that'll help the the other guy who's out on the road to sell the, to sell the sponsorship, and that's the way it worked, and that was an honest way of doing it. But that way has gone out the window. Oh, the, the, it, yeah. I mean, so I've actually physically watched a guy join a team who's a successful businessman, and I've seen this on many many occasions. He's joined the team. It could be in British GTs or something, you know, a formula similar to that. And he'll bring his own pro driver along with him who's coaching him, so he's paying the guy a salary to coach him. And they'll they'll run in the team for a year. And then you think, right, I've got a good customer here for the next two or three years. And the next year, he'll think, well, hang on, I've spent £450,000. I'd be better off putting this through my business and, you know, putting the transporters through our transport side and this, that, and the other, and it's going to cost me a lot less, and I'm going to get all the tax back, et cetera, et cetera. And the next year, the guy just sets his own team up. And then eventually what's happened is a paddock, you know, uh, a paddock full of super wealthy guys that started off paying a proper team to do it and now own their own team. And that's pretty much every professional paddock in the world now. You know, the teams are owned by wealthy business guys, who it's just a commodity to them and they've probably got their son driving in the team and they're probably paying another driver who's super experienced to drive the other car. Yes, but... That's half the grid in F2. If you look at the F2 grids that run at the Grand Prix, all those teams, you know, Stroll owns a team. All the teams are owned, you know, Mazzy Pan's father owns a team, which is very good. They're, They're all owned by guys that have gone to the team with their son and then they've just bought the team. Whereas that didn't happen 20 years ago. 20 years ago, the teams were, were well-known teams. Eddie Jordan, Alan Docking, um, you know, all these guys were independent businessmen and their business was running a race team. But, um, and they're, uh, not, they're long gone. They're long gone now. Hold on, Matt. Are we in danger, playing devil's advocate here, right? Are we in danger... Which means I don't really believe what I'm about to say. <laughs> Are we in danger of being little Englanders going, oh, do you know what? It was miles better back in the day when Bernie and Max ran the circus. And if you were in there in a circle, then that was it. And we had a wonderful lineup of drivers. Over 50% of them happened to be British or Irish. But that's just, I mean, come on, mate. You know, are you telling me, look at back in the day when it was Blundell, Brundle, Herbert. Jonathan Palmer, you know, it was it was a ridiculous number of British. Or, there's no way that they were the most talented drivers in the world. You wouldn't have them coming from such a tiny geographical area, would you? Unless it was being run. Oh, let's see who it's being run by. It's being run by Brits, and Brits are getting up most of the drives. What's that? That's got to have been wrong, hasn't it? We look back on it as a golden age, but that's got to have been wrong, yeah. I think at the end of the day, 20 years ago plus, I don't want to get into whether it was better then or better now, but 20 years ago, if you were a super quick driver, the chances are that you would end up having a professional career. And nowadays, the kids that are driving these cars come from so much wealth predominantly anyway that racing's almost, they're going to do it and then they'll move on to something else, you know, probably run their father's business or buy an island somewhere or do whatever they do, but it's just a completely different type of person. Back in the day then, these were young drivers that just wanted to race 
above anything else. Mm. And nowadays, I think it's so accessible to the wealthies that if you're 15 years old and your dad's worth 1.6 billion, you go, wouldn't mind having a go at that F1 dad. They go, all right, well, we'll go and have, you know, we'll just go and buy you a seat in the team then. Would so where where did it? <laughs> do you know what I was? I was really having to think about how I'm gonna how I'm gonna couch this question and what words I'm gonna use. So I'm gonna just come out and say it. When did it stop? Go, not necessarily when did it go wrong, but when did it stop going right for Matt Kelly? Where do you reach the point where you didn't progress to the next level, and in your heart of hearts you knew that you'd kind of missed out? When did that happen for you? Because it's happened to you know. Reed is Anthony Reed's one of my one of my best buddies, and he he's voluble on the topic. He knew exactly when he'd and he went all the way right up to virtually a Formula One drive, and then it just didn't happen for him. You know, so when did yeah, when did yeah. that happen for you? Well, my I had a bit of a weird situation because I got him through the back door. Really, I did a two or three years of gophering and then mechanicing, and I just made lots and lots of friends. And at any time there was an opportunity to jump in a car. I grasped with both hands, and eventually people started saying, you know, this kid's quite quick. We'll give him a bit of help, a bit of support. I didn't make out that I had any money. Um, I, I, I just used every opportunity that came in the 90s to the maximum, and then eventually I got a, a sponsor, Clive Sutton in London, who was a big MGF dealer, and I'd been racing TVR Tuscans, but only because Peter Wheeler paid for it. And... Um, and then it suddenly started progressing. But my problem was was that I, I liked going to the pub still. I didn't want to become a lettuce eater. We used to party quite hard on the weekends. And there was quite a few drivers of my ability that were lettuce eating and drinking water and going to bed early. So it was never really going anywhere. I had the talent. I just didn't have any application at all. I just I loved going to the race circuit at the weekend and meeting up with my friends. And you know, you'd stick it on the front row and then go out and get leathered. I think um, that's why. I think that's why there's so much um, nostalgia, and nostalgia in the in the in the truest sense of the word. In the in the, it's nostalgia for something that didn't actually exist for. That whole, if you look at, say you went to Goodwood a couple of days just gone. If you, uh-huh. if you wandered into the trading area where they're selling like, where somebody's trying to waterproof, a guy said to me about waterproofing my shoes and I said to him, mate, the suede. You know, it was like, uh-huh. <laughs> he was trying to, where all those people are and they're selling all the, all the, all the tap that, that, that they've got. So much of it is Steve McQueen forward slash James Hunt related. And you uh-huh. think, wow. Both those guys have been a long dead. Why are people, and particularly young people who were looking at that stuff, were buying a Barber Steve McQueen T-shirt or a replica of the James Hunt Breakfast of Champions, all that sort of stuff? Why? And it's because they want they want to go back to an era, or they'd like to go back to an era, when you could win and be famous and get loads of money and girls, and you could be partying with the boys. You'd win at sort of half past three. By half seven, you're a bit care-eyed. And at midnight, you're in a hot tub with three, you know, Playboy models. You're not, Uh 
in your macro, you don't have a macrobiotic meal and then go to sleep in an oxygen tent like Lewis. You know, it's like, <laughs> that's not what people want to do. They want the sham, the Bollinger bottle in the hot tub and the, you know, they want to, they want that part of it. And people say, right, when was the last time that happened? James Hunt forward slash Barry Sheen forward slash Steve McQueen. I mean, it's not like Steve McQueen was even that good. If you talk to anybody who actually, never mind all this sort of massive promotion, Paul Newman was a better racing driver for starters, right? And you, you, uh-huh. ne- you never see images of Paul. Just look at his stats. Look at what Paul Newman did in a car. Look at what Steve McQueen did in a car. And I met, yeah. I met a guy numerous times and worked with him called Dave Bickers, who ran a company out of Norfolk called Bickers Action. And uh-huh. they did a lot of the a lot of film and TV photography. If a bike was moving or a car was moving, Bickers Action shot it. Back in the day, Dave Bickers was part of the British International Six Day Trial Team that went to Germany the same year as Steve McQueen. And I was working with Dave, and I got him on one side, and I said, "Hey, you know, because here's the thing: I I grew up thinking I was named after Steve McQueen, so I'm like, you know, Steve McQueen, blah blah blah." And Dave said, in his sort of country yokel accent, his cracking bloke, he said. The truth, Steve, he was rubbish. <laughs> like that. And I was like, oh, no. And he said, he was only there because he was Hollywood. Like that. And I thought, well, that's what I suspected. But my point being, people don't want to do the lettuce eating, do they? So that's why they're continually harking back to an era when they, they thought that racing drivers could also be playboys. That's what that Bentley Boys book is all about, I told you about. You know, they'd win Le Mans. Yeah. They'd win Le Mans. And, I mean, Wolf Bonato spent, I think it was the equivalent, the, the guy that's written the book said to me, they've worked out that he spent the equivalent of about 100 grand a week on entertaining. 100 mm-hmm. grand a week. You know? Wow. And so that's, when people think, yeah, I want to be a motor racing star, they think of that, don't they? They don't think, I want to get up at half past five in the morning, go for a five-mile run, then I've then get in one of those baths that's full of ice cubes or a, whatever it is. They don't want to do all that stuff that has turned the drivers into kind of, I don't know, human robots, you know? They, they yeah, want... I, I, think, I, think, I think at the end of the day, I mean, I, looking back, it, I had a, I've led plenty of races with a substantial hangover and, a, and the guys that have then finished behind me have gone on to have fantastic touring car careers and made a good living out of it. You you, you 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 make your choices, don't you? you? You decide what you want, and I decided that I, I wanted to live the life that I'd read about. I read Only Here for the Beer with Jerry Marshall, and I used to read a lot about Tony Lamfranchi. And I ended up I had Ian Flux as a teammate. I mean, there's a typical point at wow. In '96, we were racing Tuscans, and we did the we did the um, practice and everything. It was at Mallory Park of all places. I mean, the TVRs around there were quite a spectacle, and um, and then we went back to the hotel and I ended up sitting with Flexi until five thirty in the morning, you know, um, and quite a few other people getting fairly well um, sozzled. And um, Flexi said, "Oh, you better go to bed, Matt." He said, "Your first race is at nine thirty, and and then I sat on the dummy grid at, at Mallory." And I could hear all the engines running and what have you. And I didn't realise I'd actually just fell asleep in my in the car while I'm sitting waiting to go out. Um, and five minutes later, I was leading the race. And and for for all of us, that was just quite normal. It was part of the lifestyle, you know. You didn't. There was no. There was no gyms. There was no personal trainers. There was no driver managers. 
it was like as long as you performed on the track, what you got to elsewhere was didn't really matter. And then as I got towards the end of my career, it really started mattering to people, and, and I just still didn't give a shit about it. I just did whatever I wanted. Um, and obviously, you get left behind then, which I don't mind. I didn't have the I didn't have that drive to be a professional driver. I just wanted to drive race cars as fast as I could, as often as I could. So. Who, who was the most naturally talented guy that you... I think we. some people might think this is a tough question, but usually people have an answer straight away. They go, oh, so-and-so, definitely. Who was, whether or not he went on to great success or, or toddled off to, into obscurity like us two, who, who was the most naturally talented guy you ever came up against? Um, the most naturally talented guy. There was a guy that raced um, in ninety in the late nineties called Jamie Hunter, um, who unfortunately got involved in a road accident and passed away sadly. Um, and I raced against him for a year. In fact, he'd been doing Renault Spiders and had dominated, I think, but had got thrown out of the championship because he was super aggressive on the track. Off the track, he was the nice, you know, he was the quietest, nicest, friendliest guy you could ever meet. But when he put his helmet on, he was an absolute nightmare. And I and I raced against him for a year. Um, and uh, yeah, he was pretty, he was pretty talented. It's and, funny that, isn't it? I've just I've just been reading about, um, I'm I'm writing about the sort of classic motorcycle races with with a view to a book. And I've been doing quite a lot of research. A lot of well, not quite. I've been doing a lot of research. And they were saying Renzo Pasolini, was, who was a big mate of Giacomo Agostini um, back in the 60s, was the nicest guy you could ever hope to meet. They said he was just nice, generous, friendly. As soon as he put his helmet on, he was a total bastard. <laughs> it was yeah. like, and you just think, wow. You know, and I think, I think a lot of people get caught out because they underestimate a guy like that, don't they? They think, ah, Renzo, he's, a, he's, a, he's a nice bit soft. Then the next thing you know, you, you're heading towards a wall because he's just pushed you wider, pushed you wider. Have you ever, um, have you ever got involved in fisticuffs as a result of uh, an on-the-track uh, altercation? Yeah, a few times. <laughs> I was going to say it's only happened to me once, and I got handbagged literally by the mother of the British under-16 speedway champion. We set up this race, so to speak, uh, and so there were four of us out there on speedway bikes. It was me. That lad, who I've just mentioned, who was a British under-16s champion, a semi-pro rider from, like, the Pool Pirates or whatever, and then this Danish geezer who was, like, world-class. So we set off, the tapes go up, the Danish geezer immediately goes into, like, warp, warp drive. <laughs> like, just, I'm thinking, well, how is that possible? The semi-pro guy is, is kind of not in his league, but he's, you know, he's in danger of getting lapped, and then it's between me and the kid. And I managed to stay in front of the kid until the very last corner. And I thought, I know what he's doing. He's just waiting and he's going to pass me on this last corner and I'm going to finish last. So I, I throttled back and ran deliberately wide and pushed him right into the wall. He didn't, he didn't come off, right? He didn't come off. <laughs> he didn't come off. He, he sort of bumped the wall a bit and I just passed the line in front of him. So we're doing a bit of a piece of camera on the track. And his mother comes over and just wallops me with her handbag, a proper handbagging. You know, like in sort of Dick Emery or, or Monty Python, her proper handbagging. And she said to me, and this was on camera, she said, I've seen you on the television and I thought you were a nice man. Like that, and she was like, <laughs> and she, and she was dragged away. And I thought, 
yeah, I am, until it looks like I'm going to get beat by a 15-year-old lad, and then that's going to be on telly and millions of people. I didn't mind being beat by the semi-pro guy. I definitely didn't mind being beat by the Danish guy, but I'm damned if I was going to be beaten by a 15-year-old lad. So uh, in the wall, in the wall it was. What was the, what was the worst one that you were? Uh, what was the worst one that you... Do, do, have you ever had anybody wearing a crash helmet? Because you see that all the time, don't you? You think, what are you doing? He's wearing a crash helmet, you idiot. Don't hit him in the yeah, head. I, yeah, I, I got a bar from Fullback Cart Circuit for life because I punched a guy in the Adam's Apple. Oh! After, uh, after his... <laughs> it, it caused quite a big accident and um, I ended up driving back to the pits with my sort of wheel stuck in the air and steering wheel all bent and having been upside down in a field. And um, he was the first person I saw when I got out of the car because he'd had a similar drive back to the pits. And he came over and started remonstrating with me and I just I just didn't say anything. I just thought, oh, I'm going to hit you wherever I can. So I hit him and um, it didn't end very well. So I got asked to leave the circuit, never to return, ironically. Ban- banned for life? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've been back since. Um, I, am- I don't think they remember. It was so long ago. It was like in 83 or something. <laughs> I, was in, um, I was in a part of Goodwood that I shouldn't have been um, last Friday. And it was all very pleasant because we thought we should... You, you know it is. We thought we should be in there. The, mm. the fact that they were giving out free champagne would have been an indication uh-huh. that you were probably supposed to have a sort of pasta. We just drifted in. We just drifted in behind some other people. There were there were goons on the door to stop you, but we could just kind of tagged on with somebody else, and I suppose we looked like them, and they might have been important. Anyway, we ended up in there, sat down, drinking champagne, and somebody came over and said, excuse me, this is for bloody blah and I said, oh, I'm really sorry. Is this not the such and such? You know like you do. Oh, I'm really sorry. Is this not the such and such? They said, no. I said, all right, well, I said, they were so nice. I said, do we have to leave? And they said, well, I'm afraid you'll have to. So I said, could you actually throw us out properly? And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, could you, like, if I put my arm up my back, can you, like, frog march us out for a laugh? And they went with it. <laughs> so <laughs> so they, they, they frog marched us out. And, and I said, and I, 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 as we got to the entrance, I did a sort of stagger as though, and I, and I said, I've been thrown out of better places than this. And then I went, actually, I haven't. <laughs> like that. But but they they spoiled it by, like, laughing. You know, they they, they could... Because people were like, oh, look, what's going... And they went, oh, it's not real, which is... A, which one, of, is a one of the funniest ones I had was... Uh, I did the Spa 24 Hours in 2000, and it was the last year of, of them using touring cars before it went into a GT race. Um, and Spa had always been a favourite of mine. Um, and I think it was, we were like two o'clock in the morning stint, so it's dark out the back, and there was three or four all in Hondas, I was in a Honda, and we were all just dragging each other around, doing really good lap times, it's really cool, it's the middle of the night, and we were all running in the top 20. Um, and we happened across, we caught, you know, you catch pockets of cars, and you try and all pass them at the same time, so that you continue to drag yourself around because you're like in a little bubble. And we had this, um, there was a Renault Megane, um, there's a double left-hander poo on, and we went down there, it's over 100 miles an hour, and I could see this Megane at the front, and the first guy sort of nudged him out of the way a bit, carry on through, and we all linked up, and he tried to rejoin in between me and the Honda in front, and there just wasn't a space there. Anyway, he ended up across the front of my car at about 120 miles an hour, 
And I was actually just looking straight in his eyes. He was just looking at me, and I'm still going flat out, and he's just sat on the front of me. And then he just disappeared backwards. Um, like a comedy, you know, like almost like a comedy film. He was there, and then he just disappeared. Um, and within minutes, they had the safety car lights on him. And this guy's obviously gone off, had this horrendous accident into the barriers. Uh, and I did. I finished my stint and got out and was wandering around the paddock, you know, um, just going off to have a sleep and grab some food. And this guy came and found me, <laughs> this little French guy, <laughs> and started remonstrating with me. And I, and I said to him, like, it, it wasn't me, it was my teammate. Um, so he's now gone off to find my teammate who <laughs> hasn't even driven the car yet. And um, apparently there was some 50 cuts. Uh, he, my teammate was quite confused because he said, I haven't actually been out on circuit yet. But the French guy was so vexed by them that there was some punch-up outside the back of the garage. And um, I'd already sloped off to the motorhome to have a sleep. Anyway, 11 o'clock the next day, Everybody's telling me about this mad French guy that had come. They've had a fight and they've worked out it was me that pushed him off. And when I got back in the car, I have done the pit stop and I've come out of the pits and um, through Ovusion up the straight. And the first car I come across is this repaired Renault Megane. So <laughs> we got to the next corner and he kind of tried to defend it a bit. So I fired him off again. <laughs> and apparently he turned it back in the pits. And I wasn't there. <laughs> and he had fifty and he had fifty cuffs again. So there was two lots of fifty cuffs, both caused by myself, and I never saw either of them. <laughs> so it happens. Yeah. I, I, do you know what a bimorta is, Matt? A what? A, a bimorta. Bimorta, yeah. It's an Italian yeah, yeah. exotic Italian motorcycle. Mm-hmm. About as exotic as they get back in the day. Back and, and they had a they had a good market, but it's a bit it's funny, you were talking about the Tuscan there, and I was thinking, wow, the Tuscan... And the Tuscan racing was so popular, and, the, and it, it sold so many cars. And I was going to get into a, a thing about when you think the last time racing actually sold motor cars, but m- maybe in a minute, because I want to tell you this story of it, similar to the one that you, you told there, where we're on the Isle of Man, and my pal, who I'm, was staying in the... Uh, well, th- there's a bit of a story that leads up to it, because we flew to the island in a helicopter, but we didn't land. Um, mm-hmm. We hovered over the beach in Douglas, and me and him jumped out. <laughs> and this, this actually, and here's the thing: we were wearing we we'd we'd been to a well. For, I'll tell you right. I won't go into that, but we were wearing suits, wearing black suits, white shirts, black ties. So you can guess where we'd just been. Yeah. So we we jump out looking like two characters from Reservoir Dog. We, we hovered over the beach. People were there on the beach. It was a nice day. They were like eating ice creams. And all of a sudden, this helicopter comes in, hovers about ten foot off the ground, two blocks, throw bags out, and then jump out Brilliant. looking like Brilliant. the Men in Black and walk up to the desk of the Empress Hotel and say. I believe we've got the presidential suite. And they just stared at us. It was like, who are these guys? A couple of days later, I ride into a pub, which I won't name, the Manning. I ride into a pub on the front on a Bimota. On, I think what was at the time, the YB11 Bimota was the most expensive production motorcycle you could buy. Ride it into yeah. the Manning, do a burnout and set the carpet on fire a bit, set off all the sprinklers and all the alarms and all that sort of stuff. And due to having some very uh, large and formidable Scouse friends, see, Mancunians and Scousers can be friends, um, yeah. I managed not to get torn limb from limb. And I was put in a taxi, and I, I saw this guy on Friday at Goodwood. He was sat there with a bucket of champagne, very expensive champagne in front of him, 
looking like a gangster rapper, but he was uh, he he was there at this at this on this occasion. And I remember him throwing a handful of notes at the, ta- the Isle of Man, the Manx taxi driver, and going, just drive <laughs> like that to the taxi driver. <laughs> so the next day, I wake up, and, and my pal informs me that I better get his extremely expensive, world's most expensive production motorcycle, back from where mm-hmm. it was in the pub. So I went down there, and I knock on the door, and they were cleaning up and all that. And I walk in, I said, excuse me, and the bikes just sat there exactly where I'd, on the stand, exactly where at the point of burnout, there's a big hole in the carpet. I said, excuse me, I've come for that motorbike. And somebody comes out and goes, oh, right. And I said, hey, 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 don't shoot the messenger. My governor's told me to come down here and collect that bike. I haven't got a clue. What do you mean? I haven't got a clue what's happened. I'm just collecting that bike for my governor. What's? Don't shout at me, mate. <laughs> <laughs> and he went, and he went, Oh, I'm sorry, but we, you know, he set off all the sprinklers and the ple- and the fire brigade came along. I said, "Yeah, yeah." I said, it, "I said it must have been whoever it was." You know, I said, "Whoever he is, this what's he called? Steve Perry?" Mm. Yeah, never heard of him. No, he must be a right. He must be a right one. Anyway, thank you, mate. I'm off now. Bye. <laughs> just ro- just run it up down the street. But I tell you what, let's come back to that question. The Tuscans, which was an awesome uh-huh. series. Uh, did you cross swords with my friend and colleague, Mr. Needell, in that particular championship? Yes. Thought you might have. Yes, I did, yeah. <laughs> He's not a guy, actually. Um, yeah, I, I had the great pleasure of leading him on a Top Gear programme, actually, which he was doing for Top Gear. And um, uh, oh, Hold on, Matt. Second... Hold on. First mention of Top Gear. We have to, we have to know every programme because it gets mentioned every single programme. We've got 45 minutes in without mentioning it. That's really good. I, I, know, I, normally, don't, I don't, normally don't get best of... People have mentioned it. It's become a bit of a runny joke, but... You, you, you led me into that by mentioning Nadell, so... Well, yeah, yeah. So you, when he made that feature about the Tuscan racing, you led yeah, him in was, that race? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were fighting for 8th and ninth or ninth and 10th. Um, and uh, I, I spun off in front of him, unfortunately. But it was only my second testing race, but it was funny to be in front of him. But I kind of got to know him because a friend of mine, Mark Lemmer, runs a, a team, Barwell Motorsport, and his business partner is Chris Nidell, which is Tiff's younger brother. Um, so he was always around the Barwell. You know, if, they, if we were there at a Tuscan meeting, Lemsky was racing Tuscans as well then. In fact, anybody that was anybody was racing them because it was a good earner. So... Um, yeah, yeah, Nidell was... He, I've got loads of respect for him, actually, because he was doing stuff that now, you know, when he was at his prime, if the internet had been big then, he would have been a megastar. He, he, I think Chris Harris is the new Tiffany Dell, um, who races and also does great road, re- you know, car reviews, so... Yeah, but it's so um, different, isn't it? I mean, there are two Chris Harrises, and I'm a huge fan of Chris Harris, the automotive journalist... Well, mm. I'm pretty near, as I believe the young people say, about Chris Harris playing, playing straight man to the two northern monkeys that he... That uh, yeah, he, yeah, I'm not really interested in that, but I guess, I mean, I think he was almost, I, I don't know him personally, but from what I've seen with interviews, I think he was fairly sort of cagey about doing the Top Gear thing right from the start. So, but there again, you've got to go where the money is. Which I respect him for, but yeah, his his own his own Chris Harris on cars stuff. I mean, they did that one at Portimao with the nine one eight, the Ferrari and the McLaren. The, I think it was the P one, 
it's an hour long YouTube video, probably the best, you know, supercar review that's ever been made. Oh yeah. I mean, it, it is, is the internet in, in, in one little anecdote when it comes to mm. cars. Jay Leno's Garage, fantastic weekly videos from mm. a true enthusiast who is obviously an incredibly knowledgeable, well-read man, reads up on everything he's going to be talking about, so he knows what he's talking about. He often owns the car, he's got a history with it, whatever. You look yeah. at you look at the average number of views on his videos. It can be half, it can be a million if it's a hypercar. If it's something a bit old and a bit odd, it can get down as few as quarter of a million, and that'll be when it's been up there for a couple of years. Shmi one hundred and fifty goes to Jay Leno's garage and has a walk round, filming himself on his phone. I saw him doing it a good one, filming himself on his, still filming himself on his phone. Mate, there are things called cameramen. Right? Get mm. a cameraman. You don't after you've got like four million subscribers. He, and it'll be ten times as many views of him filming the same things on his phone and asking Jay Leno inane questions. And I don't know Jay Leno, but I know somebody that does, and he volunteered a bit of information about that trip to Jay Leno's garage. Wasn't exactly mm. wasn't exactly complimentary. Let's just let's just put it that way. So the number of views is irrelevant, but the stuff that the, like I say, the stuff that those podcasts that he does that he did for collecting cars, they were great. You know, not as good as mm. this, not as good as this one, but they were you know they were pretty good. <laughs> I think I think at the end of the day, uh, I only had this conversation with somebody that works for the FIA two two evenings ago, and he's in the in the Grand Prix paddock, and we've been friends for. 30 years plus, and he had his own team, he did the F3 team, and now he works um, for the FIA doing the technical side, which is a really nice gig, and he said he thoroughly, you know, thoroughly enjoys it. But he did, he, we were talking about, you know, the TV presenters and how PC everybody is now, and how everybody's holding each other's thumbs, and there's no sort of, you know, the paddock used to be rife with, with, um, underhanded dealings, things going on, drivers getting stolen, sponsors getting stolen, somebody's got this on their car and they shouldn't have it, but they can't get away with it, you know. Whereas now, he said, basically, if you say anything wrong, or with derogatory in an interview or on TV or whatever, you come in the next day to swipe your card to get through the game, it just goes, no. So, it's, it's like a dictatorship, isn't it? It's, it's, it's like you do it our way, or it's the highway, mate. You know, you, you'll swipe your card tomorrow if you say anything bad. If Martin Brendel stood up and went, well, to be quite honest, I think these rules are shit, and we're really taking everything away from the driver and blah 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 blah. They'd go, oh, Matt Brendel's not presenting the next Grand Prix, I see, because everybody's in everybody's pocket. Whereas I think back in the day, and you know, with all these guys, particularly on the internet. Well, you've got it gives everybody an opportunity to say something that's non PC or talk about stuff that's interesting or controversial because you have to go to the internet for it now because TV they're just all patches, aren't they? Well, do you not remember when um, Murray and James Hunt were? It was recently when Murray passed and like there was a massive outpouring, of, rightly a massive outpouring of love for the mm. guy because he it was funny because old spitting image. They they sort of made him a bit of a figure of fun, which must have been massively annoying to somebody who who really really put his heart and soul into it and did his own work and was often like he said 
watching a black and white monitor, like a six-inch black and white monitor in a sweatbox somewhere on the other side of the world and couldn't couldn't make out, never mind what driver it was, you know, <laughs> what team it was or whatever. But um, when he said to James Hunt live and he said something, I think it was when they switched from turbo cars to non-turbo cars and Murray was saying... And he says that his lack of uh, his lack of good results is because he hasn't been able to adapt adapt to the switch. I think it oh, was yeah, from Turbo. Yeah, so and he says, many I knew that was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and of course, he says to James, "What do you think, James?" And James goes, <laughs> "Well, I think it's bullshit." <laughs> yeah. You just think. I mean, Matt, can you imagine? I was going to say, can you imagine that now? That just would not happen, would it? There's no way that. Happened. No, no. It's it's very um, it's very lethargic. They're all just ticking the boxes, aren't they? Which is a shame, but I think that's the way of the world now because if you say anything that's controversial, you're branded one way or another, aren't you? So how did somebody as controversial as you, as he said, conscious that we may be running out of time, end up running, as you say, a racing team with a budget where the budget was infinity? How did that even happen, Matt? Um... I just, I built a, when simulators were first coming out, we built a simulator that was um, one of the first ones where you used a full-size monocoque um, and it was placed in a room and then you put a five-metre screen around it and then you beamed all the, all the, the, the trickery and all the clever gaming part of driving through three big projectors onto a screen. So it was a fully immersive simulator and, I, and we built that with um, Cranfield University which was quite an interesting project um, which I did for a guy called Martin Hines who owns this car who sadly passed away right in the middle of us building this this amazing simulator and on one particular occasion a guy came into Grand Prix Raceway and was looking at some helmets and bits and there was nobody around so I went and chatted to him and then showed him the simulator and then he said can I bring my son over I didn't know who he was um, and he brought his son over, and then he said, you know, you're, you seem like a quite knowledgeable guy. Would you like to, you know, test my son in a car and give me your appraisal of him? So we ended up hiring um, a Portimao car track for a week, and we took all the kit out there and took some drivers out there to put the kid against and what have you. And the, the first, I think the second day of us doing this programme, uh, we were at the hotel, and he summoned me up to his room, and he said, right, I want you to come and work for me full time. Um, and we sort of made a deal, and and then I was with them for for six years. Hold yeah, on. Really at what at what point did you ask the question? Uh, excuse me, I do, you know because obviously you're British. Excuse me, I don't want to be rude, but uh, who are you? Or, or did, was he wearing all the gear? Was was he in the sort of the flowing robes where you thought? Well, could you smell the oil money, or was it was it not that obvious? No, no. The first time I met him, he was in a grey tracksuit with a baseball cap on, and. <laughs> and and it turned out that a, a year or so later when we became really good friends and I was living out in Bahrain at the time and we were having a, a meal and we were laughing about how we met and he said, you're the first guy that's ever just spoke to me normally and just sort of said it how it is and I knew that if my son was good, you'd tell me he was good and if he was shit, you'd say he was shit. So that's how it sort of came about and then I guess by just being fairly honest and blunt about everything, you know, because we'd all been around the block a few times and 
I, I don't like watching people spend inordinate amounts of money when there's loads of people saying, yeah, the kid's good, the kid's good, and you watch him and you go, you know. I said it, there's a current touring car driver that I got paid to go and coach about four years ago and and after a day with him at and I said, just go and buy him a really nice house with the money and let him do something else that he's going to really enjoy and, you know, because he's, he hasn't got what it takes. And, and now they've just poured money into it and now he's doing it. He's sort of at the middle to the back of the grid. And I just think, why bother? Why why, why waste people's time and money? But plenty do. There's plenty of drivers that are told for 10 years that they're potential Formula One world champions and the dad will spend two or three million quid and then they'll one day they'll just wake up and think, I don't think we're going to do this, you know. <laughs> Matt, what is I it? Like, what is it? I, that, like to, I like to tell him at the start, really. It just saves loads of pain. What, what is it that I've I've got a theory, but you're way more knowledgeable on this than me. What is it that makes somebody quick in a car? What do you think? Um, desire, just absolute desire. Yeah, like anything. If you want to, if you want to become good at something, the the biggest thing you got to have is desire. The desire to to just be as fast as you can be. There's plenty of people that drive around at 95% and have made good careers out of it. Yeah, but I think I think I I was never going to be any good because I thought too much, and uh, and that that was my theory for many years. And then two people confirmed it to me. One was Carl Fogarty, mm-hmm. and he, you'd think he'd know what he yeah. was talking about it, but then. Carl didn't really articulate it as well as the next guy because the the next guy who um, who confirmed it for me was Harry Vattenen. Mm-hmm. And he said he, he said, Don't think, just be. You know, it was like yeah. it was like it was like being with Yoda. That guy's like like a Finnish Yoda. He's like, you yeah. know. He said, Don't think, Steve, just be. Just mm-hmm. don't think, act. You know, and I thought, yeah, that split second of thinking about stuff, that's the difference between people, like you said, the people who drive at 95%, make a good career out of it, make a good living out of it, but never really win anything big. And, and winners like Ari Vatten and, and Carl Fogarty. I mean, look at that film, that the, the Cloud Dance, the one with Vatanen at Pike's Peak in the Peugeot. And you think, yeah, yeah I get it. And I had that man standing in front of me saying, don't think, be. And I was thinking, that is the epitome. You can watch it. It's on YouTube. Anybody listening now thinking, what are you talking about? Claude Lelouch made a, a film with Ari Vatanen at Pike's Peak in the... I'm forgetting which Persia it was. I'm not big on my, on my rally cars. Yeah, it was 405. Yeah, oh, it's just... I mean, the, the funny thing was, the Americans thought they were quick on Pike's Peak because they'd been racing there for a long time. And then Peugeot turned up with Ari Vatten and it was like, hold my beer, hold my glass, yeah. hold my pint of outrageously expensive Scandinavian beer <laughs> while we show you how it's done. And he hangs, the, he hangs the back of the car over the edge like more than once, doesn't he? And if you notice as well, he wasn't really ready for the, for the course because he wasn't wearing any sort of eye protection and he frequently has to shield his eyes with one hand while he steers with the other. And he still obliterated the the record for Pike's Peak. And like I said, he said to me, 
don't think big. Again, I was, I was talking to, I was really privileged to be talking to this group of people. It was like John Satie's Wayne Gardner. It was at Goodwood. John Satie's Wayne Gardner. Machine, and they were talking about Freddie Spencer, fast Freddie Spencer, mm-hmm. the bike racer. Yeah. And yeah. again, boiling down the content of their conversation, they were saying that his real ability and the thing that's, and they, they rated him better than any of them. Right, mm-hmm. and they said the thing that set Fast Freddy apart from others was his ability—just some sort of ability to just be, just not think too much about it, but mm. just just let his natural ability flow through him into the bike, onto the circuit, and that's what made him so successful and so hard to beat. And they agreed, the hardest man to pass on a motorcycle that any of them had ever come. Because I said, I asked him and I said, oh, Freddie Spencer, he said, getting past him was murder. He was just such a, who was the hardest person you ever tried to get? Who was the best defender of a lead or a corner that you ever raced with? The best defender of a corner who did it quite well would have been, um, there's quite a few actually. There's quite a few good defenders. I'll tell you who was quite good was Warren Hughes. Yeah. Yeah, he was very good. In fact, I, I, he was a very underrated driver. Um, he didn't have that. He, unfortunately, Warren was super talented. He just didn't have that ruthless streak. Um, yeah. well, and we ended up racing against each other for a year. And um, I think he found it quite difficult dealing with me. He was definitely faster than me. But well, I think I sort of yeah. outgunned him on the mental states. But very, very super quick driver. Should have gone all the way, really. Yeah, it's um, it, it's funny, isn't it? I don't think I don't think I'm nearly ruthless enough to be to have, have been a successful. Well, I think I think I think that's where the desire. When I say desire, I think when I've looked at every everybody that I've helped and coached and worked with, is there some guys? If you have four or five guys that talent-wise are probably on the same level, but you always have that one that's willing to go that extra. Bit, you know, and that's just pure desire. They want it so badly for whatever reason, um, and, and that's what you find as well. If you get drivers who are who have come into the sport with a lot of wealth behind them, and you, then you get a guy that's had to fight on the streets to get there and really put everything on the line and gone through some real hardships to get there, their desire to win just pushes it pushes them to the front each time because they just they want it more you know that's it for another edition of Steve's Speed Shop if you want to listen to it again don't worry there's always the podcast or you can listen to it here on Fab there's a repeat on Saturday see you next week <laughs>